what is up everybody uh i got a great episode for you today uh, before we kick off uh the interview um i just want to mention uh midwest monster fest presents pop-up horror market that will be taking place may 22nd uh saturday may 22nd from noon to 7 p.m at uh the rock island county fairgrounds in east moline illinois it's going to be a fun time there's going to be celebrities shop vendors and it's an outdoor event so it's going to be a little different than uh what we can expect from midwest monster fest but it's kind of like a a teaser of what's to come at the actual midwest monster fest in september uh, the couple guests that are going to be at the pop-up event are Walter Phelan, who uh, most notably played Dr. Satan in House of 1,000 Corpses, and also another House of 1,000 Corpses uh, guest, Robert Mukes, who plays the tow truck driver with the, the furs, the big burly uh, scary looking dude. He's also going to be at Midwest Monster Fest pop-up horror market. So, you know, it's going to be a fun time. And uh, for more ticket info and just more information on Midwest Monster Fest in general, go to MidwestMonsterFest.com. And also, if you're thinking about going but not really quite sure, maybe this will entice your wants of wanting to come here because Root Horror Podcast is going to be giving away two free tickets to the Midwest Monster Fest pop-up horror market in May. All you have to do to enter to win the tickets is either email me or private message me uh, your favorite horror movie or, you know, one of your favorite horror movies and uh, your name or a name that you would like me to announce on the show because I'm going to be announcing the winner on the show and I might possibly be, be having a celebrity uh, announce the winner. And uh, you can expect that uh, episode in contest to end uh, middle of April. And it might be the weekend after uh, Days of the Dead Chicago. So, um, you know, stay tuned for that. And I will keep everyone posted and let you know. Uh, when the announcement is going to be made for the contest. So, uh, now it should be a fun time, and uh, who doesn't want free tickets to a horror event? So, uh, you know, good luck on uh, entering the contest. And uh, without further ado, here is the awesome interview that I did with director Brad Sykes. There's a lot of good info here about uh, the horror genre and some of the movies that he's done. And his upcoming film, High Fear, he talks a little bit about that. So uh, enjoy, guys. podcast i'm 
your host, Marcus Rude, and I'm here with award-winning filmmaker Brad Sykes. Uh, first off, I just want to say, how are you doing, Brad? Very well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm just doing just great on this Wednesday uh, afternoon here in Iowa. <laughs> still, still in the AM out here in uh, in California. Over overcast. Actually, perfect day for kind of the day where you want to be inside. So uh, kind of rainy. So it worked. It was perfect. You know. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was a little rainy this morning, but uh, uh, we're still here in the 60s, which is perfect because we've mm-hmm. been having a lot of cold cold days so any day i can be outside in the 60s regardless if it's sprinkling i'll take yeah. it absolutely <laughs> but yeah uh so you you know obviously uh worked on uh, a, a lot of films including uh pretty much creating the franchise of camp blood and uh you've even done some uh editing uh special effects makeup just a little bit of everything Mm-hmm. I guess uh, first off, I want to ask you uh, what got you into the horror genre and what made you want to become a filmmaker? Well, I mean, as far as horror goes, I think that, you know, a lot of my interest in horror probably came initially from a lot of books I was reading as a kid. Like I was very I was always just drawn to like fantasy novels and sort of horror fantasy novels like Greek mythology uh, things like that. And alongside that, I was going to the movies a lot. And I, you know, like one of the first movies that I really remember seeing vividly in the theater was Clash of the Titans. And um, it just it just blew me away. And, I, and I'm sure one of the reasons I liked it so much was all the creatures, you know, all the monsters and just all the horrific imagery that's in that movie. And so I just kind of was always into that kind of stuff. And then I was interested in storytelling I was interested in writing. So I was writing short stories and kind of drawing my own comic books. And this is all like through my kind of my childhood and my early teens. And and um, so that just sort of developed into me wanting to be a filmmaker. You know, it was, it was all kind of based in writing. And um, so I got my first camera when I was 15, a high eight video camera. And nice. horror horror was just the genre that, I was attracted to other types of movies. You know, I, I love, like, say I loved, you know, James Bond movies, for example. I also loved comedies with Chevy Chase, like Fletch. <laughs> um, you know, I wasn't only into horror, but horror was, you know, for for someone who's getting into filmmaking, it's, there were the, the magazines that were out there at the time, like Fangoria and Cinefantastique, they really let you in on sort of the behind the scenes of how these movies were made more than, the other movie magazines are out there. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of, that was part of it. And then there were just horror films that I just really, really responded to like Dawn of the Dead, like Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which is still my favorite. Uh, in fact, I watched it. Um, I watched it on my birthday earlier this year. <laughs> you know, I, I watch that movie every year. That just, you know, it's just an incredible film and, and uh, works on so many levels and, you know, that and evil dead and, and bad taste. Those are sort of the trifecta that I point to when people say, why did you want to pick up a camera? What made you want to be a filmmaker? Well, those three movies, because they just made it, it made it seem like something you could actually do. Um, It wasn't just restricted only to the studios, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, these movies were delivering like entertainment, major entertainment, like they're, they're terrific movies and very well made, but yet there's something homemade or handmade about those movies 
that makes you feel like, or made me feel like at the time, and probably still people I think are inspired by them, you feel like well, maybe I could do that too, or I could do something kind of like that, or, you know, something like that. So I think right. they were just, you know, those were the films that kind of really inspired me. You know, uh, that was, that was my, those were the ones that got me to, you know, really go out and start shooting, start shooting shorts and stuff. That's awesome, man. And, uh, you know, the same would go for me. Uh, Romero's Dawn of the Dead is probably my all time favorite horror movie. Just epic. Just epic. I mean, you can't, that is a true epic, a true horror epic. And I don't know if anyone's ever, I mean, people can say there aren't probably movies out there that are scarier than Dawn of the Dead. Um, but to me, in terms of an epic vision of horror, it doesn't really get better than that. And and what's funny is it was still made for very little, you know, I mean, it was still mm-hmm. made and you know, I was watching it with my wife, like, you know, now it's hard, you know, now you watch movies after you've made some movies, you watch a movie like Donovan then go, man, this must've been so hard to make, you know, they're shooting in the mall, uh, at night. And then they had to, you know, get out of there in the morning when customers came in and they had to clean up all that blood, you know? Oh, yeah. And so you watch all those scenes and you go, this must have been incredibly, I mean, like I've seen Document of the Dead. Obviously, I've, 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 I know a fair amount about the production, but just looking at it just casually, you know, you just look at it and go, man, this must have been such a uh, difficult movie to make. Um, and, and yet you don't feel that. You feel that it's a, a real... It's it, you feel that Romero is getting to do what he wanted to do, and it doesn't feel compromised. And um, you know, so it's it's just no. I think that movie's you know obviously you're inspired by. Uh, I think people will continue to be inspired by that, and uh, Romero in general, frankly. I mean, he's probably still my favorite, in my top five filmmakers. Period. You know, not just horror filmmakers, just filmmakers. You know, it's just a hu- huge inspiration. So. Oh, for sure. And, and to, to add to Dawn of the Dead, I I think what, what really uh, uh, captures why I enjoy watching it a lot is because uh, it has a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. There's so many layers of, uh, of what's going on in that movie. Yep. I think that really adds to, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely adds to why I enjoy it so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I saw it, like when I saw it, I think I was probably, in fact, first of all, I should point out this is the first VHS I ever purchased, like ever, um, was Dawn of the Dead. And I remember ordering it from a video store, like going in and saying, hey, can you guys order me a copy of Dawn of the Dead out of your catalog? Um, I still have that tape, by the way. And uh, But when I first saw the movie, and probably it was like this for you too, the first thing it really registers is just obviously the extreme gore and the violence and mm-hmm. and the Savini effects, you know? And, and just some of the imagery, some of the zombie imagery, and some of the humor, too, the black humor, you know, the zombie getting the top of his head cut off by the helicopter blade and things like that. But then, you know, you keep watching it and you go, gee, why does this resonate with me beyond the gore? Well, it's the whole, obviously, the social, you know, the satire and the, the use of the mall and the characters, uh, you know, the choices the characters make. And it's just... It just it is multi-layered. You're absolutely right, and it, and it's and that's why, as much as I love, say, a movie like Halloween, I, you know, I'll never put those two really on the same level. Um, mm-hmm. I think Halloween. And I'm saying it. That's a terrific movie, a wonderful movie, but it's just not the same type of movie. It's it's not a layered movie, you know. Um, right. So you know, just to. I- 
I totally Robert agree, Harrison. Brad. I don't know. Totally different types of movies, but they're both horror classics. And I think that, you know, uh, and the same is true of Night of Living Dead and, and frankly, Day of the Dead. Um, they all have levels beneath the, uh, the zombie imagery or the gore, which, which frankly, as you get older, and this has happened to me too with my own filmmaking, is you sort of you start to get away from the gore or the violence after a while because you just you've done it, you've been there, done that, and you want to do other things. Um, I think Romero, speaking for him on some level, I think he wanted to do other things too, um, and and uh, and he did them, he did them, but he didn't. Dawn of the Dead, he did all of them. You know, he did it all. You know, he kind of. Mm -hmm. You got the 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 character stuff, the the you know commentary and the uh, the gore and the violence and the effects. So it's just what a movie, you know. Uh, right. In in retrospect, it's kind of a, a historical movie too, just because of uh, the aesthetics of like the mall, how it looked like back in the seventies. Oh yeah, yeah, the J.C. Penney store and everything. It's it's the fun of it's the fun of looking at all those films become timepieces after a while, um, just by virtue of you know what stores were around back then and and how things were laid out and and all of that you know. But but at the same time you know like watching it this year I'm thinking you know this has still resonates. Unfortunately in this era it resonates on another level you know and this this sort of fear of disease and fear of contamination. Um, and and that being a virus, essentially being scarier than any slasher or any supernatural monster, you know, I, I th so, you know, it gains another layer nowadays that, that it maybe didn't necessarily have in 1978, you know, or 79 oh, right. that came out. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, with the, with this whole new virus, it, it, it kind of. Uh, puts the fear in everyone, really. It does. It does. It doesn't. It makes you realize, even if you've, because I've done a couple movies that are about more or less viruses. Um, I mean, I've done a movie called Plaguers, which obviously is about plague, and another one called Mutation. And, you know, when you read, and these are entertainment. These are definitely, I would say, more or less light entertainment, you know, uh, you know, they're intended to be. But mm -hmm. when you see, you know, headlines day after day or week after week about new mutations in a virus and all this kind of stuff it makes you think it gives you pause and makes you think about what what does that really mean you know uh, what does that really mean in the real world and um you know it, it definitely makes you think you know right. um i think i'm not saying that movie there shouldn't be light entertainment out there because there should because we surely need it but it does make you think about the real world connotations of of what you're doing sometimes you know so oh for sure for sure and, uh, I mean, I guess we could even uh, uh, talk about Plagueers since we're on the subject. Sure. Uh, so, you know, your film Plagueers has won several awards, and, and congrats, congrats for that, by the way. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, the, the creature effects were incredible. I, I loved the way the, uh, the infected uh, people, per se, looked. Uh, and uh, the different colored eyes, I think, mm -hmm. really added to what kind of separates this from other horror films. And, and I dug that aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the most challenging aspects on making that film? And then uh, what was it like working with Steve Railsback? Um, well, the, the biggest challenge, I mean, you, you just sort of brought up one of the biggest challenges was, and it, I gave, it was a challenge I sort of made, I, I created for myself was the idea that, you know, these infected uh, 
people would get would change. They would they would basically transform over time. I wanted because this movie is sort of like a zombies in space movie. That's the easiest way to to put it. But there's more to it than that. And I wanted the the creatures, the plaguers, if you will, to look different each time you saw them. And I thought that would make it interesting. You know, it's more interesting to watch, frankly. And mm-hmm. also, you keep you guessing because you're going, "What's this thing going to look like next time we see it? How much more horrible is it going to look?" You know. Right. So you start with the contacts, you know, in the eyes and the fangs or, or teeth, you know, and some makeup. And then you start to get into like prosthetics. And then you by the end of the film, you're getting your like full creature suits on, on some of these some of these actors. And in fact, I even told people when they came into audition, I said, you know, you're actually playing two characters in this. You know, you're, you're going to play your character as a human and then you're going to play them as a plaguer. And hmm. um, so every single actor in that underwent a lot of, of um, they spent a lot of time in the makeup chair. And mm-hmm. that was a challenging thing. That was challenging. In fact, there were a couple of times where we actually had to reshoot a couple of things. Um, not a lot, but there was, I remember there was one scene in particular, we had to reshoot it because it was the wrong stage. Because I sort of had them in stages, you know, like stage, they all had maybe three stages or something like that. And the makeup effects, uh, artists were supposed to keep track of that and we also had a script supervisor in the movie but somehow there were there was just a couple of things where we realized we shot it and he was he wasn't the wrong stage you know the actor was in the wrong stage makeup no yeah so that was kind of i mean look things like that happen it's almost like one of those things when it happens it's not really anybody's fault in particular it's just it just happened and let's just go do it again you know um and although that and but when things like that happen it's it really behooves you to be like the way we were filming that movie was we're shooting on stages well that's when it really really helps a lot to be shooting on stages because you're there every day at the same place and it's lit the same and you can you can go back and reshoot is what i'm getting at now of course Mm -hmm. we still had a short schedule in that movie so we didn't want to do that too much but we were able to do that um so that was a challenge that was definitely a challenge and just Frankly, just shooting all of that action and all of that effects work in roughly two weeks, uh, we had we we're probably there all in for maybe three weeks, but that included like building, like build days. I guess you could say pre-production, and then some like second unit kind of pick up things that we did at the end uh, without the you know actors essentially. But it was really like a twelve-day shoot. So it's a lot of material to shoot, a lot of action, a lot of effects to shoot in in 12 days. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and what was the other question? Oh, Steve Rails back. Well, I, well, you know, I literally, I've always been a fan of Steve Rails back. Um, Life Force is one of my favorite movies, which you can probably tell from watching Plaguers. <laughs> um, and I love the stunt man, and and he's done a lot of other great stuff. Obviously, Helter Skelter and Ed Gein and lots of other things. And I was always a fan of him and I didn't know him. I didn't have a line on him. I didn't know anyone who'd worked with him. And when I was writing the script, I told my wife, Josephine, who produced the movie, I said, wouldn't it be cool if we could get Steve Rails back in this? <laughs> and I wrote that character for Steve Tarver. I wrote it for him and she got a hold of him. She reached out through I think it was really through IMDB at the time um, his manager was on there and reached out to his manager and anyway got the script to Steve and we met with him he scrutinized us a bit <laughs> I was a little bit you know nervous meeting with Railsback because he is Steve Railsback after all you know right. and he, oh. he's he's that guy 
but actually the funny thing is he he turned out to be the the biggest sweetheart and like like so fun and kind of goofy and enthusiastic kind of childlike in a way and just like really really enthusiastic about the movie and and we spent a lot of time with him um before the shoot and then after the shoot even through a rap party like a separate party at his house you know that he just moved into um you know for a, it, he was he was really really uh great to work with and and I I wanted him there the whole time I wanted his character to be in the movie throughout you know sometimes you get the actor like you see the name actor on the box and they're in it for like one scene behind a desk <laughs> you know and you're like oh yeah. Lance Erickson's in this oh kind of you know um, you know, I, I wanted I wanted Steve to really be in the movie throughout from beginning to end. And and um, so he was there almost every day. And um, I think he really enjoyed doing the action stuff. That was fun. And, um, you know, just it's just very enjoyable to work with, you know. Um, and, and he ended up winning an award for his performance at this uh, Shocker Fest that we went to. And... Um, you know, it's just just a it was a real it was a real dream come true, frankly. I mean, I, I the first day of this of the shoot, I was pinching myself because I just couldn't believe we we're standing there on that spaceship set with with rails back in that costume and uh, filming those scenes because it's always you know movies generally take the Plagueers took, mm, I mean, it took years. It took a few years to get it off the ground, and it took just a year alone just to raise the money and. You know, the script was completed, you know, probably a year before that or something. So it took a few years and just to be there and get all those elements together was terrific. And he told me at one point I told Steve while we we're filming, I said, you know, I wrote this part for you. And he said, you know, there's only one other person who's ever written the role for me. And he said, that's Chris Carter from the X-Files. Um, he wrote Dwayne Barry for him, which was oh. sort of a, a famous character he played on the x-files that was like a two-parter i believe a great part like a guy who believed he'd been abducted by ufos or he'd been abducted by ufos and anyway oh. so me and chris me and chris carter you know oh my gosh that's so cool man yeah no he was he really was great i mean i could tell you more i could tell you plenty of rails back stories but the, the whole sh <laughs> i don't want the whole show to be about that but i mean it was you know he was it was it was one of those experiences where you're, you're really, you know, you meet one of your heroes, um, you work with one of your heroes, and it's a very good experience. Because I know that's not always the case with everybody who's made a film. Um, sometimes you might get somebody you really thought was cool, or you really like their films, but maybe they're not so great to work with. Um, you know, but that was not the case here. He was he was really terrific. So, you know, it was, it was one of my high points of, well, my whole career, really. Um, but definitely a high point of making Plagueers was was getting to work with him. Oh man, so yeah, that's so cool. And I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned Life Force. Love that's, it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. It's so and, over uh, the top. It's just so gloriously over the top. And you know, it for the for that we will not have movies like that again. Um, you know, the, on that made on that level, with that level of craziness, that's that's Toby Hooper. That's Canon Films. And that's Steve Rails back, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and he would tell me stories about he would tell me stories about Life Force. He would tell me stories about the Funhouse, you know, or, or not, not the, I mean, not he wasn't in the Funhouse, but he was around when they're editing the Funhouse. He was hanging out there because the same editor who cut the Funhouse was cutting the stuntman. 
so he had all kinds of Hooper stories and um, and, and, and the and Richard Rush too, directed The Stuntman. I mean, that's one that, and if you haven't seen The Stuntman, wonderful movie. One of the best movies about filmmaking ever made. Um, in fact, Steve was nominated for a Golden Globe for that. It's just a, it's a tremendous movie. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to uh, check that one out. Oh, yeah. Sure. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. You'll, you'll enjoy it. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's just, it's, it's outrageous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, uh, before we trail off, uh, uh, Plagers real quick, uh, mm-hmm. when, when we were talking, uh, uh, previously I had mentioned, uh, Wyatt Weed mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so I had contacted him asking him about that. And he gave me a little info on the sets of Plagers, uh-huh. uh, that the, the, those were, uh, spaceship sets originally built in 1992 for right. a tv pilot called star runners right it was uh based on the comic book fusion and uh you know i i think those sets kind of became more popular than than that pilot ever was well that show never not yeah the people who who were running the place um uh who were the stage essentially the stage managers or you know over there they they told me all that stuff and it was yeah well that that was never sold it was a pilot that was never sold and um they just the the people who built it were pretty wealthy and they kept it there and they continued to rent it out to other productions um over the years and it's funny because i saw this gives you an idea of how a movie can kind of germinate like i saw this first saw the sets in maybe 2005 or earlier it wasn't maybe 2003 Anyway, it was years before we made the movie. I was taken over there on a scout by another producer who I made a movie for, and he was trying to do a smaller film there. And nothing ever really happened with that, but it did give me the, you know, idea of possibly making a movie there. And the funny thing is, I mean, of course, to make Plaguers, we had to build probably at least a quarter to 30% of the stuff in Plagueers we build it ourselves because the, you know, they have some things there, but they didn't really have enough for an entire film. And so we just, you know, you know, we kind of built onto what they had. We built some rooms completely from scratch and just made it all fit together. We had a great production designer on that who literally built these things. I mean, he didn't just draw pictures. He actually got a hammer and nails out and had a crew and did it. Um, that's how we did it. But, you know, it was usually people, I think we are still, a lot of productions have gone in and out of there over the years. I think we are, because I've talked to the stage manager about this even recently, we are the only film to make an entire feature movie there um, from beginning to end. Uh, And we used everything, because they have a big green screen there too, and we used that for all our spaceship stuff. You know, that was actually the first day of shooting was miniatures all day long, just shooting talking about life force you know i wanted to have that feel that retro feel where you actually see the ship and it's obviously you know it's it's a model it's not a cgi ship that you're looking at for a second you know and then you drop into the set i I mean look it's fine if you can do that really well and that's what you want to do fine that's what most people do but for this movie i want everything to feel i want it to feel as tactile and real as possible just like the effects and that's why we did all the you know the physical effects so that's right. yeah it's, it's an interesting place that people have used a lot of times people will go there for a day or two days they might shoot a commercial like i saw a dunkin donuts commercial recently that was shot there huh. um it seems like every time i go on a trip like my wife and i went on a trip 
like at the end of the year last year and we're in a hotel room and it's always seems like whenever I'm on a trip, I'll turn on the TV and I'll see an ad that has the Plager ships in it. <laughs> like you saw the Dunkin' Donut, literally like you saw Dunkin' Donuts there. We're in the middle of the desert, like in Death Valley, literally. And here's this ad for Dunkin' Donuts. I'm like, oh, there's our, there's our stages. And then like a year or two before that, we were, we were in like down near San Diego and there was an ad, it was actually an ad for a Star Wars promo or something about some show they were doing about the Star Wars films and they used it for that because you know it's it's just a it's a place that's usually what people do with it though they'll go there for a day or two do some quickie thing like for a short or something but they won't do it They're, only we were crazy enough to think we could make an entire movie there you know um what we did wow so. that's awesome I, I brought with me a uh, Zombie Chronicles. I have a copy of that. Oh, okay. And uh, watched it last night. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> and it it's fun. I liked it. It had been a while since I'd seen it till we did the thing last um, last summer that you know we that Bobby did over there on um, um, Universe. Oh, uh, right. Retro. That was that was fun. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. I was actually going to uh, uh, message him about uh, when he's going to do another one because I kind of miss doing those uh, watch parties. Yeah, yeah. He kind of, I mean, I am I know he did, obviously did more since I, the ones I did. I mean, he did some before that and after that. But um, yeah, I didn't really, I don't remember hearing a lot about that. And I haven't done one with him. Um, and I wouldn't mind doing another one, you know. I think, I mean, he had a lot of people show up for those. And there was so many comments that, it was hard to keep up with all of them, you know, literally, uh, especially right. with Camp Blood. That was like, it was I couldn't I couldn't respond to all the the questions that were on there, you know. Right. Yeah. There's tons and tons of questions, <laughs> which is great. I mean, that's the whole point of it, you know. I mean, I was, you know, the last thing you want to do is have that, and then nobody shows up, or you just have oh. like a few people who you already know, and they're asking you questions, and <laughs> you know, uh, your pals are asking you questions just to be. Just to be supportive, but it was it was they were very uh, well attended. I mean, he obviously knows what he's doing with all that because he has a good, a pretty big audience. You know, he reaches a pretty big audience. So, so yeah, maybe we'll do another one. I, I should, yeah, you could if maybe if you mention it and if I mention it to him at some point, maybe he'll he'll uh, he'll do that again. We could, you know, we got a lot of movies to choose from. So, oh, most definitely. <laughs> you know, shout out for Bobby. Yeah, sure, Bobby, of course, of course. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, my next question is, um, what is your favorite universal monster or universal monster film? Um, I was thinking about that one and first of all, I haven't seen all of them. I don't know how many people have, but I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen a fair number of them. And I would just, I mean, probably the ones that come to mind, I think the original Frankenstein is terrific. That's probably one of the first ones I ever saw because I can still remember, like the scenes with the villagers with the torches at the end, you know, with those torches. Mm. There's something about fire that looks incredible in black and white. Um, that whole movie just looks great, and it, it's it's a it's it's affecting. It's you know, it's a, Frankenstein is more of a, a sympathetic character, I guess you could say, than most monsters are. You know, right? And I like so I I so I'm a fan of Frankenstein. I'm a fan of Island of Lost Souls. I think that's still the best treatment of, of Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, mm. 
Charles Lawton is is great in that, and it's just it's just disturbing. I mean, it's interesting how some of these older films can still be more disturbing than anything that people made nowadays. You know, um, mm-hmm. and then the Black Cat. Talking about Karloff again, um, the Black Cat is an interesting movie, an unusual movie in the in the Universal canon. You know, and I think part of that's because of the director Edgar Ulmer, who's like a um, European immigrant. I mean, like many of the filmmakers back then, he he was more of a noir director. You know, he did this movie called Detour, which is an incredible noir. So his sensibilities were a little bit different, I think, and um, a little bit darker. And I think The Black Cat shows that. So those are three that I really like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is a lot of fun, you know, I mean, those are all, those are ones that come to mind. Right. Oh yeah. Those are good picks. And, uh, I think Island of Lost Souls is like the, you know, the, the, you're the first on my show that's, that's brought that one up. So kudos. It's terrific. For... <laughs> it's terrific. It's, it's disturbing. And, um, like I said, it's been done a few times since, but I don't think it's been done better than that. Um, you know, I think it's just, um, I don't know. It just captures it really well, captures the story really well. And um, all these movies have great photography. You know what I mean? Like even the ones that are maybe you're a little bit slower paced, like The Mummy, for example. Like, like I'm not a huge fan of The Mummy, but it's beautifully shot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, these movies, you know, they're usually worth watching it for nothing else, just for the the great photography, production values and stuff. There, I, mean, I know they're considered... B pictures or you know smaller pictures back then, I and mean, they're they're really well made, you know. Um, oh yeah, all of sure. them. So you know, in fact, I did a. I'll tell you one that I did. I actually, I like the movie okay, um, but I did a, a presentation at the Autry Museum, which is like the a museum out here for Western, um, you know, uh, Western movies and just Western culture in general. They. Uh, they asked me to present this uh, screening for this universal horror film called Curse of the Undead, which is a a vampire Western that was one of the last um, universal horror films. Like, it was made in 1958. Okay. And have you ever seen that? Yeah, actually, I I did for a a cult movie pick. I was playing along one year with this cult movie Uh uh, theme of the week, and you had to uh, watch a movie, you know, at least one movie a week that fits mm-hmm. the theme and I forgot what week it was, but I ended up picking that one and uh, it, it was, it's a lot different. It almost kind of felt like a, a twilight zone episode. In a yeah. Way. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's different than like some of the other films we're talking about, you know, it doesn't have that Gothic atmosphere um, as much. And the reason, I mean, I did, I wrote a book about, desert terror what i call desert terror movies like you know essentially like thrillers and chillers that are set in the southwest and um early one of the earlier chapters you know has had curse of the undead in there because it is the first vampire western mm-hmm. and the the people who um the programmers at the autry uh, i was doing a series there i'm still doing it actually um just different like we did Duel, uh, we did um, Vampires, John Carpenter's Vampires. I did um, uh, Ghost Town, that Empire film, if you've ever seen that. And mm-hmm. Curse of the Undead was the second film we did. And um, it was interesting. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, it's interesting, like, you know, the attendance for that was huge. Like so many people came out for that because it was, it's, it's a rare movie. Now, now it's on Blu-ray, but when we screened it, it was not on Blu-ray. It was not past VHS. <laughs> so oh, wow. it was a very rare chance to see that movie on the big screen and, uh, and hear about it, you know, hear about the, the production and, and everything. So, um, so that's a universal film. I'm pretty, well acquainted with let's just say a uh, universal horror film you know and it kind of shows you that they were at the time they were sort of straining beyond the i mean this is when hammer films are starting to come out basically so you know really by that point hammer had was about to who had already probably supplanted uh universal um in most people's minds in terms of you know going to see movies about dracula or frankenstein or the mummy it was really literally around the time that say like car of dracula came out you know things like that so right. they were on the way out and Hammer was in, but it's interesting to see them kind of experimenting with different genres, crossbreeding genres. So that's kind of what Curse of the Undead was. So, right. Oh, that, that's so cool, man. Interesting movie. I mean, you know, there's a one line in that, that movie I love. The vampire character says, it's not the uh, it's not the dead that bother me. It's the living that give me trouble. You know, <laughs> uh, there's like a scene where they they're in a more they're in a, a tomb or something like that or, or a, you know, you know, a, a mausoleum and he's like eh, it's not the dead the bottom it's a living that give me trouble you know so it's it's got some interesting things in it for sure for sure um yeah there's a couple of things that that came to mind bringing up curse of the undead uh you know for that being the first vampire western uh, glenn danzig's working on a on a new vampire western. i movie. saw the trailer for that the other day as a matter of fact yeah so that, that's interesting. Uh, I think I think you know <laughs> the best one. You know my favorite one is Near Dark. I mean that's that's just you know far yeah, away. That, Even if it doesn't one. actually have any fangs on display, it's 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 you know it's a vampire western and uh, modern western. You know um, that's my favorite. Right. You know it's, it seems like every decade. I mean the '90s we had a few. You know we had From Dusk Till Dawn and all the you know the sequels and we had. Um, we had John Carpenter's Vampires, which I'm a fan of that. Uh, quite, I, I like that movie quite a bit. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's been, I've noticed lately off and on, there's been more and more horror westerns kind of creeping up, you know? Um, yeah. Even since I wrote the book, really. I mean, there's been, there's been a bunch, and that's, another, that's one of them, you know? There's still... There's still some Western town sets out here. You know, some of the Western town, you talked about my early work, like when I was doing effects and other jobs, you know, I would go out to these Western town sets out here in, in Southern California and they would shoot these movies and they weren't necessarily Westerns. They were just using the, you know, the, the property, you know, for different things. A lot of these places, unfortunately, have burned down. You know, they don't they don't exist anymore um, because of fires that we've had out here. So like, you know, there's one that full moon used to shoot stuff at all the time and that's gone. And, um, there's another one that was a real big one called Paramount ranch that, that burned down a few years ago. So I don't know where he went for his, but there's still a few, there's still a few out there. I mean, Westworld, Westworld was shooting, you know, um, around here, you know, on these different, Mm -hmm. they would go from one town to, to another, literally. Um, because we saw them when they were out there, actually, while they were prepping, um, prepping the town for Westworld. But yeah, there's still a few Western towns out here, thankfully, you know, that you can shoot at. Right. I find yeah. these type of places fascinating. Um, in fact, where we shot, 
talking about this type of stuff, when we're talking about Cam Blood, um, um, don't know how familiar you are with Manson, with the Manson family and Spawn Ranch, but um, where we shot Camp Blood was a few miles away from the former site of Spawn Ranch, where the Manson family was living um, at the time oh, of the wow. Tate murders. You hear, I mean, you see it in the Tarantino movie, for example. You see it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, that that ranch burned down pretty much right after Manson was arrested. Um, within maybe a year or so, it, it burned to the ground. Um, so history repeats itself. But I hmm. found that out when we were doing Camp Blood because I had the guy who played the clown in Camp Blood who was also doing effects on the movie. He was he was from the area. I mean, I'm from Virginia originally. A lot of people out here are from somewhere else. You, you rarely meet people who are actually native, uh, California natives, but occasionally you do. And mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, you know, Spawn Ranch is just a few miles from here. And I, at the time, I thought he was just saying that, you know, like, yeah, OK, whatever, Steve. Sure, sure it is. <laughs> well, actually, he was he was telling the truth because uh, I looked into it later on and mapped it and everything. And it really was um, the site really was a few miles from from where we shot because I went back out there another time and looked around, you know, but um yeah, so that's kind of an interesting little wow. little little footnote to the the Camp Blood saga. Wow, yeah, I, I, I that's the first I've heard of that info. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I didn't even take it that seriously at the time, and I didn't look into it so many years later, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know, we were we shot the movie in Chatsworth. The city is called Chatsworth, and that's up in the mountains and there's you know i mean it's a you know there's plenty of neighborhoods and stuff up there but there's a lot of mountains and rocky areas and stuff and winding roads and that's that's where spawn ranch was but but you know for the that was like a popular set for low budget movies back then um al adamson shot movies there so a lot of low budget filmmakers did stuff there back sure, then back sure. in the 60s nice well uh Speaking of Camp Blood, uh, that movie's kind of became like a cult hit over the years. And uh, did you ever think it would spawn so many sequels? <laughs> and, you know, could we possibly see you come back to the franchise writing or directing or, or both? Well, I would say, first of all, that nobody, no director ever thinks that their movie is going to when they're making the movie that thinks it's going to be even get a sequel, let alone, you know, a bunch of sequels. Um, when we did Camp Blood, it was just, you know, it was a tough shoot. We were shooting in 3D. Uh, we we're some of the first people to ever shoot digital 3D movies. And it was a difficult process. I mean, and once again, actually talking about reshooting, we had seen big scenes and that sometimes it had to be reshot scenes with blood and nudity and, bringing actors back out. I mean, you know, um, because the 3D lens would have technical issues sometimes where you basically, because you're dealing with 3D, you basically got two fields that you're talking about, like a left and a right, and you have to converge them. That's kind of what happens with your eyes when you're looking at the picture, um, you know, through the glasses. Well, imagine looking, you know, you've got to do that work while you're shooting the movie, essentially. Uh, the DP has to do that. I was not the DP on that. But... We were sort of, I mean, he he and I, too, were kind of learning as we were doing on that movie. So there would be scenes occasionally that would just be, for better way of putting it, was be out of focus. So you had to reshoot them. Um, 
and then it was just a challenging movie to do because of the low budget and the, you know the stuff we were doing all the action it was also shot around this time of year which is not a good time of year to shoot a movie in in southern california because it rains uh almost like on, on i mean it almost rains like you can bet on it that it will rain in like february march so it's never good to shoot a movie then but the producer wanted to shoot the movie then so you know we end up having a lot of like canceled shoot days on that too so very challenging movie to make so we were just trying to get through it now we had fun sometimes too um but overall very very challenging and did not think i didn't think anything of it one way or the other i thought that we had we had an entertaining movie that would deliver i was trying to make a movie as close to the slashers that i'm a fan of uh, as, as close as i could with the budget i had maybe pushing beyond that budget uh, as much as i could but I didn't think it would be a, it would get a sequel. But it made a distinct impression on me when I went down to the because we shot the movie in '99, and in 2000, early 2000, there was a film market out here, a big film market, and I went down to that. And everybody, literally, I I ran to a few people, distributors, like people were buying movies for their different countries who were talking about Camp Blood. There was a guy at Camp Blood in his bag, I remember, and all this. And I'm going, okay, you know, and. And then the producer came over to me and said, these guys, the guys who were handling Camp Blood for foreign, they want to do Camp Blood too, based on the foreign sales. It hadn't even released in the U.S. yet. Oh, uh, they want to do a, a sequel based on just on that alone. The U.K. bought it and, you know, it, I mean, it's everywhere, France, Germany, you know, all over the world. Mm-hmm. So they we made the sequel based on the foreign sales for the original, which is something that probably you could not do today because foreign sales is a is a joke nowadays, but because of piracy and other things. But anyway, mm-hmm. we went ahead and did that sequel. Like literally, probably a year after we did the first one, we were making the sequel. So that's when I knew we were onto something. As for the rest of it, <laughs> you know, I mean, the <laughs> first two movies got pretty good releases. A lot of people saw them. More people. I mean, I. I know a lot of people who saw Camp Blood in Blockbuster. I never saw it in Blockbuster, but I know people who did. Um, I saw Camp Blood 2 in a lot of stores. Um, but, you know, we did we did the third film, Within the Woods, which was originally Camp Blood 3. That was the title of it when we made it. Um, the distributors uh, decided to change the title, which I don't think was a good idea, but they, they opted out to change the title. Um, Josephine and I did that through Nightfall Pictures in 2005, and I didn't necessarily think there would be a bunch more sequels after that. Um, and I haven't seen any of those, you know, but it's flattering to, to, to see how much people like the original movie or that they like what we came up with, you know, for the first few films. You know, right. and, and the characters and the, the clown character and all that kind of stuff. It's the concept. It's I mean, look, it's it's flattering. Um, but as far as I would, you know, me coming back to it or not, I mean, I, I don't think I would be coming back to. Um, you know, you're not going to see me doing a spinoff. Movie that's going to be done with the people that are doing it right now um, that are that are doing those. I'm, I'm not going to be. I wouldn't be involved in that, but I have learned to never say never in this business, and I wouldn't mind making another slasher movie at some point. So, you know, you never know. 
Um, nice. It's a possibility. And I, I mean, look, I, I think it'd be fun. You know, I think it'd be a lot of fun uh, to go back to some of that and, and see what you could do with it that's different. And it hasn't been done before. Um, and also just do it, do it really well because I'm not, at this point, I don't really want to just grind things out. Um, I don't want to just churn things out quickly i was doing movies like that for a little while and it's it's very hard to maintain a level of quality that you want when you're making movies like that and occasionally you will some will come out fairly okay but then there are others that come out that you're just like man that that movie needed more time in post or you know what i mean um you know it just uh-huh. that can happen so so i don't know but i'm i'm surely you know it's it's very cool and and very unexpected that I'm still talking about Camp Blood 20 years later, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's really, so we must have done something right, you know? Right. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a topic that, uh, you know, is is always there. I'm always seeing Camp Blood stuff, like, I know, a lot. I know, I know. I, I, I hear from people about it not every day, but often enough. Um, you know, and uh, people who've got releases of it that I've never seen before, you know, um, you know, there, there's, it's, it's been released, especially in Germany has been released a lot. Um, and really in England too, but it's always seems like there's a new version of it popping up somewhere or some foreign release I didn't know about or something like that. But, um, you know, I mean, all I can say is that all the three, the three camp blood movies I did, I'm, I'm stand behind them you know um i think they're mm-hmm. we did the best we could with what we had and um there's things about all three of them that i like you know there's things about maybe that i don't like too here and there but I, there's things about all three of them that i do think are fun and cool and um i don't know i was just sitting there thinking you know we've got you know i i'm a big fan of you know the burning and madman and my bloody valentine and the final terror and i'm like how can we make a movie like that for like pocket change you know mm-hmm. um <clears throat> but we did it we, we did it you know we, we just tried to be ambitious and and have fun um so that's what we did you know and we did it and, and we shot it in 3d which was crazy i mean it's just first the first two movies were shot in 3d the third one thankfully by that 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 technology was kind of going away so we didn't have to shoot the third one in 3d that's, that's ironic you know for that being the third one yeah, right. It w- I know it would have been a no-brainer, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I never, I never thought of that before. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure it wouldn't have been lost on Paramount or Sean Cunningham, um, but uh, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, no, it could have been Campbell three and three D. Hey, I mean, you know, but I mean, I tell you, man, though, as a director, like basically shooting in three D with that particular process was like you were limited to medium shots. You couldn't do extreme close-ups and you couldn't do extreme wide shots. So you basically drop two of your basic filmmaking vo- tools, uh, your vocabulary are, are gone. Um, and also you couldn't really shoot out d- during uh, nighttime or in darker settings because the lens would cut down on the exposure. So you'd end up with a like inherently darker image. You'd have to almost like ratchet up the f-stops just to like get something that could would be exposable, you know. So mm-hmm. it was a very limiting, you know, piece of equipment that would, um, you know, you were composing for 3D. So that means you're doing a lot of things with depth, with a lot of, you know, exaggerated depth from, you know, front to back and things like that, which that's fine. But I mean, like not every shot in your movie should look like that, you know. So mm-hmm. it was just getting kind of um, 
kind of frustrating. <clears throat> In fact, when we did Camp Blood 2, sometimes I just said, take that lens off of there, take that 3D lens off, because I would do an extreme close-up, you know, especially in the action scenes of somebody's eyeball getting gouged out or something. And I'd be like, just take the lens off because this scene just isn't going to deliver if we don't have a, you know, a real close-up of this. So mm-hmm. that was, uh, there, there was some contention about that, of course. Um, so it was nice on the third one to just go out and shoot it. We had a better camera. Technology had um, jumped ahead a bit by then, too. So it was more up to like 24p um, at that time. To, so that was a more of the state-of-the-art um, camera for, you know, mid-range budget movies. And um, that's what we shot within the woods. Nice, nice. nice. Well, well, hear me out real quick. Um, you know, if, if you were to go back to the Camp Blood series and, you know, make it your fourth Camp Blood movie, um, usually... Uh, <laughs> By the fourth movie in the franchise, they go to outer space. So, right. So, you know, hear me out. It'd be kind of cool to see like the Camblood slasher. Somehow he's up in space, and it's kind of like a Camp Blood Plaguers mashup, like Jason X or Leprechaun in space or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Hey, why not? You know, I mean, they thaw him out at the beginning. You know, I picture like a Han Solo type of a scene, although I think that's probably how Jason X was, right? I mean, I haven't seen that in a while. Don't they thaw him out when a bunch of like dry ice comes out of like a a big like um Yeah, he was like cryogenically frozen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, space coffin. I mean, we still, I mean, I could probably track that spit coffin down from Plagueers and, um, (laughs) you know, put the clown in there. You know, I mean, <clears throat> two of my just... biggest hits. I mean, it's like a you know two great tastes that taste great together. So you know, I mean, uh, why not? Right. I would. I mean, what I would love to do, honestly, is like you know, just all I can say is if I did another film like that, I would just want to do something that really delivered, at least as much as the ones I've done, and and probably more. You know, because I think that if you want, if you're going to go back to something, if you're going to revisit something. You've got to do something that makes it not just worthwhile for the audience, but worthwhile for you. Um, like when I did Camp Blood 2, I decided it was going to be more of a comedy, but I also wanted the effects to be better, and they were. Um, I wanted gorier deaths, better effects, and we ended up with even better effects people than I thought we were going to get, which was a real, real blessing. Um, but I always try to you know, find something that I haven't done before, I haven't necessarily seen before, or whatever. And so it'd be cool. It would be cool to revisit it, at least from the standpoint of like upping, you know, certain things, certain production values of it and things like that. At the same time, I would still want to do physical effects and, you know, no digital blood, you know, right. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I have a, I have a, a physical reaction to digital blood, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't stand that. Um, so to me, it, it's got to be on the screen, you know? It's got to be real. Right. Just get out that pump and get those tubing and, you know, get that Kara syrup or whatever and mm-hmm. get it going, you know? Um, so, yeah. But no, not a bad idea. Not a bad <laughs> idea. I heard, I think one a friend of mine who's like this guy who's watched a lot of my, I mean, I've known him for like 20 years. He's watched all my movies off and on. He always gives me his honest appraisal. I think he said something to me about Plagueers one time, like, this was like Camp Blood in space, or I wanted this to be like Camp Blood in space. 
And, and I'm thinking to myself, what the heck are you talking about? You know, this is a totally different type of movie. But, you know, people approach things with their own idea of, of it. You know, uh, we uh -huh. all do that, you know, especially with our sequels and things like that. You go and go, oh, I really liked such and such about the last one. Well, you know, you kind of want more of the same, but different. Well, that's sort of a hard thing to to achieve, you know. Um, so right. I will keep that in mind, though. The spaceship sets are still there, you know. I'm sure they'd be happy to see me again. Right. <laughs> they had plenty of blood to clean up after we were done over there. So um, just, why not give them some more blood to clean? Give up? them some more. Yeah, they've been they've been dealing with Dunkin' Donuts and other people. They can, you know. I think that it's time for a real movie to come in there again and, you know, see what right. see what's still there of what we built. You know, kind of give them like a. Uh, are you a fan of the John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars? Um, not particularly. Okay. I mean, as far as Carpenter's, but it's one of those movies that like I wanted to like it, and and I wanted to like it so much that I've watched it a few times, hoping to like it, you know, more each time I see it, and it never happens. But there is a concept there that I like a lot, and you know, it's it's like Assault and Precinct Thirteen on Mars, really. You know, mm -hmm. uh, like just you know, Assault and Precinct Thirteen is a masterpiece, and. Um, you know, Ghosts of Mars isn't, but but I like the idea of it. I, I do like the sort of you know cops and criminals having to team up against something, and um, you know, and and doing it in a sci-fi setting is cool. So I could see why Carpenter wanted to make it. I could see what he thought he was. I could see what he was going for with it, but uh, no, no. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, look, there there are worse Carpenter films out there, like Escape from L.A. I guess. I mean, those are both sort of kind of in the same area really for me, I guess. didn't like escape from not at all not at all I, yeah. I and that's another one i've seen since i saw it in the movie actually saw it the movies when it came out at the side of man's chinese and and i really like the original movie you know I, I really do but to me that movie and ghost of mars they both have this sort of laziness about them they're 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 very expensive movies that are kind of lazy um they don't have the the verve, the intensity, and the edge um, that the earlier films have. Um, on the other hand, I'm a huge fan of Prince of Darkness, which some people don't care for, and I love that movie. Um, that's actually my favorite Carpenter film. So, you know, everybody's got their their favorites, I guess. But I think after all his ninety, in all of his nineties work, it's not my favorites. You know, they're they're not my favorites of his uh, his filmography. You know, mm -hmm. I think after they live, just sort of, you know, I like Village of the Damned. Actually, some people don't like that movie. I like his remake of Village of the Damned. So you know, right. <laughs> if you want to talk carpenter, but but yeah, no, and, and you know, because you go back to these things sometimes, you hope to like them more. Maybe you'll see some aspect of it that that appeals to you more the next time you watch it, but. Mm -hmm. not really not with those unfortunately yeah um you know i i, I don't want to like spend too much time on it but i i'll say like i think uh you know like those movies like escape from la and uh and ghost of mars i think mm -hmm. that kind of hit my age range um uh -huh. and and i mean like I, for me ghost of mars is i mean i know a lot of people don't really care for it but it's kind of a guilty pleasure for me Mm -hmm. And and I think you kind of you nailed the 
the head on on the nail of uh, the concept. I think the whole concept about that movie is what really kind of cap captivated me. Yeah, yeah, and, it's a good uh, concept. And you know, I mean, maybe the choice of music might not have been the greatest either. <laughs> hate, hate the music in that movie. <laughs> like, like music, music is a huge, huge part of the movies for me, of my own movies and and other people's movies, more than probably for some filmmakers. I've gotten in bigger fights with producers over music than I have about casting. Um, like Escape from L.A. I don't care for the music in that particularly, and I really don't like the rock stuff that he brought into uh, Ghosts of Mars. Like, that's one of the few Carpenter scores I couldn't listen to, you know? And actually, when I say 90s, I should say this. Vampires, which came at the end of the 90s, I think that's his best film of the 90s. And, and one of the reasons I like it, not the only reason, I love the music. I think the music is, like, it's it has a neat balance between, like, kind of bluesy guitar stuff and that that synth you know beat that you always associate with carpenter it's got like a nice mixture of and he did a real i mean he did a real nice job with the score on that and i think it was good that he just did it basically himself because with those other two films he had other people that did it really um and i don't think they benefited from that sorry to go off on that but you mentioned the music you said you didn't like the music either so that Mm -hmm. was that was yeah i remember like i can remember actually the first time I saw the trailer for Ghosts of Mars, I went to a um, event where they were screening. This is you know years and years ago. They were screening Halloween, um, and Carpenter was there to speak about it afterward. And this is when these type of things were there. They were happening, but they weren't happening at the level they happen now, where you you know you got to buy tickets and you can't get in and all this nonsense. And we just went to it. It was no big deal. So anyway, it was really cool. You know, you see Halloween screen on thirty five. Carpenter talks for a while about it, sits there and chain smokes the whole time. And uh, and then I got him to sign. Remember, I had all I had was, was my movie ticket because I didn't know he was going to sign things. And so I asked him to sign my he signed my ticket. But I remember before they screened Halloween, they screened the trailer for Ghosts of Mars. That was the first time I saw the trailer. <clears throat> and I remember seeing that trailer and going, "That looks kick ass. That looks like it's going to be a lot of fun." You know, mm-hmm. I think it was the first film he'd made after Vampires. Pretty sure. And I was like, "Oh, that's going to be another action horror movie like Vampires." And He's going back to sci-fi again, but it looks like it's a real horror movie, too. And this is going to be cool. And so I was all prepped to really like the movie, um, but it didn't it didn't come together. I think there was some casting on that, too. I remember reading that he, he originally wanted Courtney Love to play the Natasha Hintridge role. And that might have been interesting. That might have been interesting. It might have given it something, you know. Um, I don't know why she had bowed out, but, you know, who knows. Mm. But, um would have been yeah, maybe with some different actors with a different it, the way it's edited too. It's kind of a weird. I don't know. I don't want to keep going with it, but I mean, it, <laughs> there's some weird editing in that. Some some. I just don't think the editing is as tight. That's probably the best way to put it. It's just the editing is kind of sloppy. Um, dissolves. There's a lot of lap dissolves and things like that. And it's like when you see that, what that usually means is they didn't get the coverage they really needed to make the scene really work. So they try to just turn it into kind of a montage that doesn't achieve the uh, suspense or excitement that you get from, say, an earlier Carpenter movie like The Thing or Escape from New York or any of these other ones. I mean, think about those movies. You know, the, the editing right. is very tight. He just had a he just had a dream team back then with Dean Cundy and uh, Deborah Hill and, you know, certain people he was working with that were just, you know, they had a they had lightning in a bottle for a few years, you know. Right. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. 
It's hard to um, keep that going. I mean, it's very hard <laughs> okay. in this business because that's one of the things you find out when you you know do this for long enough. And I'm not comparing myself to him at all, um, but you know, you do sometimes find people you really like to work with, but then for various reasons, that just isn't going to happen anymore. They might get too expensive. They might move. They might just go crazy. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, you might have a creative falling out. You know, there's there's a hundred different things that can happen, and so it's very hard to keep all those balls in the air and keep those relationships going. Um, I mean, I'm amazed sometimes that people are able to do as long as they do. Um, but it's kind of like when you see certain bands that are still playing together and you're like, how the hell do these guys still do this? You know, um, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about the money because, you know, some of them at this point or a long time ago, they could all walked away from it if they didn't feel like doing it anymore, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. playing with each other they just genuinely like you two or rolling stones or whatever they just genuinely like playing with each other and um you know that's a really hard thing to to create with the movies and keep it going for film after film after film very hard to do and sometimes it's upsetting because you find somebody you really like to work with it could be an actor or it could be a, a director of photography and you know just for one reason or the other there's a finite number of movies you're going to make with that person and that's it, you know, um, or you might work with them again 10 years later, you know, you just, just never know. Um, I mean, like the film that we're doing right now, High Fear, I'm working with an editor that actually was with me at the Carpenter screening I was talking about. Um, in fact, he was the one who invited me to that, and I've worked with him for 20 years now, off and on. Um, our visual effects guy on the film we're doing now, Day Out of Days for High Fear, uh, he did the effects for Plaguers, the visual effects for Plaguers. Hmm. So, you know, um, some sometimes you, you work with people for off and on for long periods of time, and sometimes people just disappear. That's just how the business is. Right, right. Yeah, and and so speaking of your your new film, I fear. Uh, so this will be like the third one in in the series. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, the the first one was High Eight, and then uh, there's High Death, now High Fear. Um, jumping back to High Eight, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, uh, my opinion, I, I thought it's a really cool idea to bring uh, multiple SOV filmmakers together to make one big anthology uh how did this project come to be about in uh was it difficult contacting all these other filmmakers to to make the project happen it was surprisingly easy i have to say um probably one of the easier parts of making that movie although overall the, that movie high eight came together pretty smoothly all things considered but basically how it happened was um, I was on Facebook and I had been invited into this Facebook group that was about SOV, shot on video, horror, like essentially micro-budget horror movies, uh, you know, about from the 90s, let's say 80s, 90s, and so on, past then. And there were a lot of other, you know, it was a fun group and there were a lot of other filmmakers in there who whose names I, I wasn't, I didn't know them, but I recognized their names, like Tim Ritter who did Truth or Dare, or Todd Sheets, you know, who had done a gazillion movies in the 90s. and uh, Nightmare Asylum. Donald, Nightmare, yeah, yeah, Zombie Nightmare and all that. And, you know, and uh, uh, Donald Farmer was in there, who I recognized. And um, 
there were just a lot of familiar names. I mean, I rented Tim Ritter's movies. Tim Ritter's movies were like Killing Spree were an inspiration to me when I was starting out when I was in college. So anyway, I got, you know, we were talking, it started on a thread. Literally, we were talking about the VHS series. That's what it was. VHS. I think they just made one of them at that time or something. And we were, you know, of course, the joke with that was, well, they're called VHS, but these things really have nothing to do with VHS and they're kind of slick and they're, you know, they don't really fit that analog period. They're kind of co-opting the, the, you know, uh, the, the format, so to speak, or the nostalgia without really delivering something that relates to that. So we started talking about that. And Tim Ritter said, we ought to make, jokingly said, we ought to make a movie called High Eight, Horror Independent Eight. And I'm like, I'm big on titles. Like just about all my movies, I came up with a title before I came up with it, when I, before I wrote the script. And that just sounded like a winner to me. And I'm thinking of that title with, with some of these guys, with, you know, with, with myself and some of the other directors that are in here, we could actually have something really cool. Like actually a movie that does deliver what VHS is saying that they're delivering, you know? Mm-hmm. So I reached out to Tim first since he came up with it. And I said, what do you think about making this a reality? And he was interested in doing it. And then I asked Josephine and said, would you want to like executive produce this, like essentially manage this, you know, eight film anthology. And, and she's like, yeah. And because we figured it'd be fun to go out and just for ourselves personally, it would be fun to go out and just make a short and not worry about the, the, all the, you know, things that can happen when you make a feature. You know, uh, just all the the difficulties of raising the money and the whole process. This would just be like a fun way of doing something without risking a lot or uh, or whatever. And I thought people would like it. And so I, you know, so Tim was on board. She was on board. And then I started contacting directors, literally just out of that um, group. Ron Bonk was in there. I knew Ron Bonk already. Um, you know, uh, Marcus Koch. I met him in there too, I think. And um, so, you know, we just, I just started contacting people and just about every single person said yes. I think there was one person who couldn't do it, you know, just for whatever reason, they were working on some other project and they couldn't do it, but just about everybody said yes. So I lined up that, that group of seven more directors pretty quickly. And just, we, we had a list of rules. We kind of created like a eight, eight rules of high eight which is essentially, you know, the rules were to only shoot an analog equipment and to shoot, you know, with available, you know, kind of like available resources, basically go back to your roots, you know, go back to your roots and um, don't get too fancy, don't get too slick and make something you think is cool. Don't worry about commerciality of it. Don't think about what the marketplace wants, you know, what was popular last year, what you think is going to be popular next year. Just make something you think is cool. So everybody, you know, did that essentially they did it in different ways some people had a script some people didn't have a script it was you know it was an interesting process you know we were kind of managing all of that here getting all the films delivered and um we had a finished movie by like the fall of that year and which is pretty amazing when you think about it this was in um 2013 and um you know it it uh premiered out here in LA and then it started playing, you know, cause all these different filmmakers have different connections to festivals and, and uh, theaters and stuff. So then it started playing all over the place, all over the country. And then we ended up getting, uh, and then wild eye, uh, released it in 2014. 
So, and that movie just got a lot of like good word of mouth. Like you, you can push things, you can, you know, you can push a movie, you know, with PR, but people, people either like it or they don't. And people just really responded to height and they really liked it and they liked what we did. And, um, you know, it was, that's why we did the sequel because, you know, it was just very well received. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, we did the sequel and then, you know, that was a smaller, it was a, less directors but a bigger scope we kind of went to high definition on that one and then this new one uh we're in production on it right now it's been you know slowed down by the covid epidemic um Mm -hmm. you know but but you know what i mean to be honest with you there are always things that you you encounter when you're making low budget movies they're independent movies and um if it's not one thing, it's another. I mean, there were things that happened on High Death that, you know, and that was made before COVID. That was made in like 2015, 2016, you know? So mm-hmm. it's just, it's always something. Um, we're used to being creative and, uh, you know, thinking on our feet. And uh, it's also tougher when you have a movie that's shot in different parts of the country by different people with different situations, that sort of presents its own challenge. I think people think with anthologies, oh, you just collect all these movies and just stitch them together and that must be easy. You don't have to do... No, not really. It's actually a lot harder than you think it is, Um, especially if you want it to be good um, and not just thrown together. So we've been... You know, some of the films are finished. Uh, In fact, actually at this point, all the films are finished um, in terms of the shooting and the posting is going on. Some of them are you know, kind of post now, like ours is, you know, we're working on ours now, like sound and music. So it's been, um, each one of these, these, it's been an interesting process, been an interesting learning process too, because it's a different type of skill set, kind of manage, managing the project as opposed to being, just being a director, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but it's cool. I mean, like Tim, you know, great, great working with Tim and Todd and, you know, and, and Tony Goggles and, um, all the other directors and stuff and everybody has something different and everybody has a different, everybody makes movies differently, which is kind of the point of these movies, because I don't want them to be, I don't want you to look at it and feel like, you know, they're all uniform. I actually want them to all be very different. And you feel like when you're watching a Todd Sheets film, you know, you're watching Todd Sheets film, you're watching Tim Ritter film, you know, it's a Tim Ritter film, you know, I like that. I think that's the whole point of these movies is to be unique and different and uh, let people do things that, they might not otherwise get to do in a feature context. And also, frankly, sometimes some ideas are better done as shorts than as features, you know? Um, like the one we just did is a sci-fi kind of, you mentioned Twilight Zone earlier. Ours is kind of a Twilight zone sci-fi kind of piece, kind of into the world, a little bit Romero-esque, actually, uh, piece. Mm. And no zombies, but more like aliens, so it goes back to sci-fi and, and you know, kind of the Plagueers type of stuff. But it's, you know, it's half an hour long, and it's one of these things where we looked at it and went, sometimes we're like, could this have been a feature? Well, maybe, but it might have been a boring feature. Or, it might, you know, it might have been dragged out a bit. Whereas as a short, it's a very good, tight, compressed half-hour short, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so certain things, certain ideas work better as shorts than than features i think so um so that's what's that's what's going on with that so that's what we've been spending a lot of our time on lately you know um is putting these anthologies together and getting them released and 
and all that, you know, and this one, we're hoping to finish this one in the next couple of months. I mean, that's general, that's the general, general plan, you know? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, just from you describing your one of your segments in it, uh, I'm I'm anxious to to check it out. It sounds really interesting. It's it's kind of like a when I when I had actresses come in for it, I said this is about you're in a relationship with an alien. Like that's basically what you know what happens in this is that people are there's like I'll tell you the story a little bit. Just there's like three people who are um, meeting up at this isolated cabin. Um, for a film shoot. One's a makeup artist, one's a director of photography, and then it's a director of photography's girlfriend who's not really with the movies at all. She's a college student. And essentially, the shoot never happens. Nobody else from the shoot ever shows up. And not only does the shoot not happen, it seems like everything is just, the society is just, like, disappearing. Like, they can't, there's no radio contact, there's no, you know, phones, radio, TV. Everything is just, like, going blank and at the same time it's getting hotter and hotter temperature is rising and um one of the characters the girl who is the younger girl the uh, girlfriend starts to see this like strange lights in the sky that are the more she investigates it the more she finds out about it and essentially the idea is that you know these people might be some of the last people left on earth and everything is everything everything is changing because of these visitors visitor or visitors we don't know how many there are but there's at least one that we see because you do see it um and then it just sort of becomes about how these people like we're talking about dawn of the dead earlier how these people respond to the situation you know do they are they calm and collected and try to make plans or do they just freak out and just lose their shit because you know everybody has a different reaction Mm-hmm. Um, you think about like the mist or something like that. It's, it's sort of in that, in that, you know, realm. Um, so that's kind of what we did. It's called day out of days, which is a apocalyptic sounding title. But what it refers to is a, it's a film term where when you're scheduling actors, it's about how many days they work, uh, like a particular actor works out of the total days. That's what it means. But I've always thought that was an interesting term. It sounds weird, you know, um, and kind of sci-fi ish to me. So that's why Josephine and I wrote it together. That's why we called it Day Out of Days because we're like, this is kind of like a double meaning, you know? Um, right on. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's something totally different, you know, um, for me, which is why I did it because I just always try to do something different every time out. And um, it, I mean, it's, I'm very happy with it right now. I mean, we're doing some, we just got some cool music the other day that's, that, that just elevates the thing tremendously. And um, the other segments are really cool, too. I've seen all of them. They're all different. They're all different types of horror. So, you know, all I can say is if you liked High Eight and you liked High Death, we're doing the same thing with High Fear. You know, we're giving you different types of horror, you know, um, different approaches to horror. So it's not – and they're all kind of – they're all a little bit – off the beaten path they're not a lot there's nothing generic in any of these you know um because i watch a lot of horror movies you know (laughs) because i like them and also because i like to know what's going on and um you know i think you need to know so anyway yeah so that's what we're literally yesterday i mean like we're when we're doing the post a lot of the post is being done virtually on this as you can imagine um 
In fact, we worked with our editor. One of the last meeting, like physical meetings we had with our with anybody was in March of last year, where we locked the picture on our, our film. And then, you know, the next thing you know, everything was shut down and you couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Um, so everything's been done virtually since then. But you know what? A lot of post is done virtually anyways nowadays. Um, you know, a lot of major mm. filmmakers do post virtually. So it's not like it's really a new thing for for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so it's um, more or less it's probably like the production is what's different. Oh, yeah. Like we could not have made you're absolutely right. This you could not have made this movie. Like, I mean, when we did the for, for day out of days, we shot for four days in a house that's about an hour out, roughly an hour or so north of, of L.A. in like a mountain community, right? Like kind of a kind of a vacation community really is what it is. And we rented this Airbnb house. And we just took over. We all well, we all lived there. That's my point. Is we all lived there, cast and crew. We all lived in that house the whole time, all together. So people were sharing rooms. I mean, Josephine and I were down on a pull-out couch in the front room, you know, down by the fireplace. I mean, this is not a big house because we didn't want a big house because then it wouldn't work for the movie, you know. Um, so we had to find a balance between a location that would house people comfortably enough, but also work for the movie, so which is not an easy thing to pull off. But anyway, we, we, so we're all there. So there's no way you could put a bunch of people in a situation like a big brother type situation now. Uh, no way, you know, um, you know, we, cause we actually shot a little bit last year. We did a shoot in November, uh, our only COVID shoot, I guess we've had, you know, since the pandemic started, we went out and did the wraparound segment. You know, every anthology has a wraparound. So we went and did the wraparound around here in the city with a couple of actors and I shot it myself and basically it was just like me and Josephine and a couple of actors and we just went and did it. It was like my high school days basically, you know, literally just, which is kind of cool, you know, it's kind of fun, but it's, I mean, the only part it wasn't fun was wearing a mask and, you know, uh, probably carrying more equipment than usual and all that, but, but we did it, you know, um, but you could not have done the shoot that we did, you know, at the end of uh, 2019, you could not have done that now. Um, you know, I, I think it's people are there are movies, you know, happening and stuff. But like the general, the thing is, I mean, the average productions, you know, the budget goes up by 20 percent just for COVID related things, for safety mm-hmm. precautions. So what happens then is you're going to micro budget filmmakers are still going to do things, especially in states where things are more lax and things are getting a bit better here, actually in California now too. Um, big studios and micro micro films, they can still kind of do what they've been doing, but at mid range movies or like say, you know, even like a half million dollar movie or a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar movie, they're the ones that are going to get hit the, the most by this because they might not be able to literally afford that. You know, mm-hmm. um, because they've got unions and they've got, uh, you know, they've got the things that come along right, with right. doing a big, a bit bigger film. So they're going to they're going to get hurt the most by that. Um, that's why you hear about studio things still shooting. Well, yeah, they, they've got, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Um, but um, but I am I'm not planning on shooting anything bigger until this gets more under control, you know. Um, right. But I, I mean, at the same time, we're posting this movie. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to post this film and 
kind of shepherd it through. What we're hoping is we can do some fests at the end of the year with it, you know, that type of thing. We're hoping that things will at least by the fall, let's say, of this year, will have gotten a little bit back to normal because um, th- from that standpoint, you know, um, to be able to do a real real screenings and stuff like that, just virtual screenings but or, or drive. We had a drive-in screening of Plagers last year. Um, oh which wow! Was cool. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, this 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 guy Brandon Yates, great guy. Um, he um, he's in Indiana. He runs this um, this uh, screening, this series over to drive in. That's been there for a long time, and he, he just loves indie horror, and he loves anthologies in particular. But he loves indie horror, and he screened how many movies. I mean, I know he did a high death screen. He did high eight and high death, and then he did Plagers last year, and. Um, I couldn't go to it, but like he sent me pictures from it. It was just cool to see a bunch of cars parked in front of a screen, and there's the Plagers, you know, there's Plagers up on the screen. Um, oh, that was pretty neat. And I bet it played great at a drive in, too, frankly, because that's really the time period that we were going for with that movie. You know, it was in like 70s, 80s uh, horror sci fi movies. So I bet that was fun. Right. But it'll yeah, be nice to go cool. back. It'll be nice to go back to regular. You know, um, regular regular everything for everybody. You know, not just the movies, but everything. But um, so that's what we're um, that's what we're working on now. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I I expect uh, the drive-ins are going to be a big hit this summer. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With you know, just with everything going on, I think the the drive-ins are going to strive or thrive. Uh, the movie theaters, I don't know. I mean, I think they're still going to be taking a hit, but yeah, uh, yeah, Absolutely. drive-ins for sure. We we got a couple around here actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're going. They've in, uh, you know, I I gotta say thanks to uh, Grindhouse Releasing for uh, oh, doing the, Bob Murawski. yeah, for doing the uh, Evil Dead double feature at the drive-in. Yeah, and uh, that that was just so amazing. And yeah, I, yeah. I hope to see more of that kind of stuff come back in, you know, nationwide. Yeah. Cause, Cause that kind of, I think pretty much hit nationwide, like, you know, several of the bigger drive-in areas were playing them. And, you know, I just, I hope to see more, more of that. And, and, you know, hopefully that even kind of branched to, uh, the right holders of some of these older horror movies to kind of be like, Hey, you know, this might be, this might be a good thing. Yeah. 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 It would be, I mean, it'd be nice if everybody could benefit from it, you know, really um, get some newer indies out there. Cause that's kind of what, what Brandon was doing at his thing. Like he had a, he had a, you know, a, I don't know if it was just one month they were doing it for, or maybe it was two months, but anyway, he had a period of time where they were kind of doing this thing and they were, had already some big movies coming in from like, a bloom house or whatever you know mm-hmm. and um but he wanted to get some indies in too and that's why we were talking about plaguers because we're like well he was doing double bills too so he double bill remember he double billed it with some other film it wasn't a bloom house film it was a i forget what it was called it was i think it was like a rape and revenge movie with bruce dern in it i can't remember what it was called offhand it, was called, it wasn't the hunt but it was something like that and anyway yeah so he was kind of trying to pair up films that were a little bit bigger with films that were a little bit smaller and just kind of expose people to different things, you know? And I think that's the kind of the, that would be the key with some of this is to, you know, 
get your, you know, get your Evil Deads out or get your new, let's say, new studio horror movie out, but then get some indie things in there too, so so everybody can can get a shot, you know, and, and maybe right. people who stick. I mean, if they can always leave if they don't want to watch a second feature, they can leave, you know. But like, it kind of puts things in front of people. Uh, it gives the gives indies a bit more of a, a chance um, for exposure because it's just really. It's really difficult, and that's why screenings and all this stuff, it's so important nowadays. You know, like when I started out, like we are talking about Camp Blood earlier, well, Camp Blood never played any festival, okay? But it was just released everywhere. Well, you know, now it's almost the, in, the inverse of that. I mean, now, you know, you can, you, you, okay, you can get a release, but the releases don't generally penetrate uh, as much as they used to, you know? Um just because of the way things are set up with streaming and everything. Um, mm-hmm. So they don't get in, in front of as many eyeballs. And they, you know, as they used to say, video stores are the great equalizer. You know, you'd have Terminator 2 on the shelf next to, you know, Death Factory or whatever, you know. And <laughs> and, I, and I, I mean, you know, that's the thing. It, it, it did not just legitimize it, but it just put it out there for, like, anybody who's walking in the store to see. And now I think... People have a more of a niche kind of attitude what they're looking for, and they're just going to look for that, and that's it. Like, they're probably not going to see a bunch of things that otherwise they would have seen. So you try to get – that's why these, you know, festivals and screenings – I mean, we've done a lot. I mean, we probably did about 20 fests with High 8 um, and probably at least half of those or maybe more, they asked us to play the movie. Um, you know, High Death, we did a lot of things too, and, you know – we we were able to attend some of them. Some of them were not able to attend, but we love them. We love them happening. We love seeing the you know hearing about them or whatever you know people tell us, because it's about the movie getting out there and, people, and audiences being able to sit and watch the movie. Um, kind of gives it just a you know more of a presence than just being dumped onto a streaming channel. You know, um, right? Whatever. And look, I'm not I'm not, I'm not bad mouthing that because that's what distribution really is nowadays. Um, you know, obviously, we're still fans of physical media, and uh, as a collector and as a filmmaker, especially if you start out make out making movies and having them on like physical media, like even going back to VHS. In my case, it's to me that's that means you you've accomplished something. That means that's your end product. Like that's the proof of all your work is that tape or that DVD or that Blu-ray. You know, right. um, just having it on streaming only mm, that that wouldn't cut it for me. That just wouldn't cut it for me. Um, uh, nor I think would it cut it for a lot of people, you know, but, um, so you got to find, you know, you have to be creative and find new ways to get your movie out there, get your movie, make it stand out and, and, um, allow people to see it. But yeah, be, if, yeah, if drive-ins make a come. I mean, they're making a comeback out here. There's some out here, you know, um, and there's some that have sort of been set up since this started, you know, and I don't know if those are all going to stay but there's been that's definitely been a trend out here too you know sometimes they're showing older kind of a mixture usually they'll show some like new releases but then they'll show some you know 80s favorite you know Mm -hmm. um, movie that kind of thing so but yeah i know movie theaters yeah i don't know i mean it's it's gonna be a long time before i go to a movie theater again personally you know i have to be honest same here that's okay and i'm not i have to be very honest about this i haven't been a big fan of you know a lot of the, you know, 
all the stuff that plays in the theater nowadays, mm, I'm not a huge fan of it. I mean, you know, I'm not not across the board, but I mean, most of it, especially the studio stuff, I'm not really that interested in the, you know, along with the prices and just the a lot of other things. I'm just not, I don't go to the movies that often in the theater. I watch a lot of movies, but I don't watch them in the movie theater. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just me, but, you know. Um, yeah, it's got to be something like, you know, really well anticipated for me, to, you know, to drag me out to right. the movie theater. Right. Yeah, same here. I mean, like one of the last movies we saw in the theater was actually that movie Climax, a Gaspar Noé movie. Like that was one of the last mm-hmm. things we saw in the theater because like his films are, I don't know if you've seen any of his films or not, but all his films are very confrontational let's just say they're experiences they're they're almost like going to a concert they're not passive uh filmmaking uh, experiences you know they're very uh, like you're very involved they're very uh, almost assaulting you in a way and we like his work so we went to see climax and that was probably one of the last things we saw um in the theater there might have been one other one i just can't think of it right now but they're you know before everything shut down um but yeah, I agree with you. We're kind of kind of picky. I wanted to see Color Out of Space, but that was only like a limited engagement or something, and whatever, right. you know. Uh, oh I, man, I, I that would have been like, pretty cool, actually. That would have been very cool. They, yeah, it would have been cool. And I, like, see, I'm one of these people that like I saw Hardware in the movie theater when it came out, oh, and wow. that blew me away. Blew me away. Like, talk about great use of music in a movie. Mm-hmm. Shit. I mean, like, it's just amazing. I mean, the soundtrack is just one of the many cool things about that film. So I became a Richard Stanley fan after that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Color Out of Space would have been cool to see. I think, like, two of the big, were the big, big ones, like we saw. Once Upon a Time in, the, in Hollywood, obviously, I went to see that. And I saw um, Ad Astra, which was pretty impressive. You know, but <clears throat> there weren't that many. Joker, I kind of wish I'd gone to see Joker in the theater, actually, because I was pretty impressed with that. But whatever <laughs> yeah I, I that one i actually did go see in the uh-huh. it, it was amazing to say the least i bet it was i bet it, that was happening right when we were we were literally prepping our our film the one we did in the in the up in the mountains and we just couldn't go it was like it was almost like all those good movies were coming out like one after another you know and mm-hmm. there's a theater around here that's like a single screen movie palace that's it's a great place called the vista and um it's uh, uh they were they were sh- they show things on 35 like they get 35 prints of movies that a lot of play- other places they'll just show a dcp you know and they had a print of joker i remember i actually saw the print sitting on the floor like we were walking out of the lobby and they had the cans sitting there these rusty cans that said joker on them and i was like oh that would be so- I-, I have a feeling that's going to be great and it's going to be great to see it on film but we just couldn't do it, you know. Just I couldn't lose that day just to go see Joker in the middle of the day or whatever it was. But I did enjoy the movie a lot, and I bet it looked awesome um, on the big screen. You know, it was pretty bracing watching it at home. So I can only imagine what it was like in the theater. Right. Yeah. It's it was uh, very cool, and uh, you know, it with the with the whole setting, it really made you feel like you're watching like a movie from like the 70s oh yeah oh yeah they did a great job of invoking that you know urban that urban hell of the 70s of you know taxi driver death wish or 
You know, the, the, right. New York City was the defining urban hell of the 70s. <laughs> you know, um, if, if L.A. Oh, became, oh, sure. took that place in the 80s, I think that the New York got it surely cinematically anyway. They they uh, owned it <laughs> in the 70s, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as much as I love the Joker, uh, I have to uh, move along here with. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we're kind of kind of wind windling down on time here yeah um, I, i'm no i'm looked up to the clock i just saw we got an hour and a half we've been talking for an hour and a half right i knew and, this I would mean, happen <laughs> right right well uh you know I, i'll maybe ask a couple more questions mm -hmm. and then uh you know there you got so many other films that we haven't really talked about um i'd love to have you back on the show at some point sure. and, yeah we can do that and talk about some of those other films yeah. um but this this one's uh, more or less for uh, my buddy Matt. He wants to know uh, more about uh, Death Factory, and okay. if you had any interesting stories working on that film, and uh, working with Tiffany Shepis. There are a lot of stories I could tell you about Death Factory. Um, I'll start for I'll start with Tiffany. Um, the interesting thing about her casting was that we were casting for a part, this girl who's like a victim at the beginning of the movie, who shows up, she's probably in the first, let's say, 10 minutes of the movie, whatever. She comes out with her boyfriend, she gets killed, and she's just in like the prologue. So we were casting for that part of a victim, and Tiffany came in to read for that. And I, this is a time where I, I, I knew who she was. Um, she was. She had done some stuff, for sure. She hadn't done as many things as she did later, you know, but she had been in some movies. And she'd been in some movies for friends of mine had directed. And um, she came in and read for that. And then we started talking. And we started talking about the monster, you know, the female creature monster in the movie who was going to do the killing. And I was showing her some pictures I had of like uh, Mindy Clark from Return of the Living Dead 3. I said, this is what we kind of want to do with, with that character. And she was like, you know... I think I'd I'd much rather play the killer in this. Like, what do you guys, what do you think about me playing the killer in this? And um, I thought it was sound like a pretty cool idea, you know. Um, I auditioned other people for the killer also, but that was a hard part to audition people for because there's no dialogue really. They're just sort of slobbering and, you know, making <laughs> sounds. So I remember like talking to her on the phone, and she came over here one time, and we talked about it a bit more, and it just seemed like it would be a lot smarter from many stands, standpoints, to have her play the killer. Because she'd be in the movie a lot more, and she really wanted to do it, you mm -hmm. know? She, we didn't have to twist her arm to do it. It was her idea, you know, her suggestion to do that. Wow. So that's how Tiffany ended up playing the creature in Death Factory. And that can happen in a lot of movies. You bring an actor in for one part, and then you realize that they'd be better to read for something else. That, that can happen. So that's how she ended up in the film. And in terms of making that movie, it was a very, very difficult shoot. Because we're shooting in a haunted attraction in Woodland Hills that was basically off of a main street. Like there was a mall next door. There was a Toys R Us across the street. And it was this kind of dilapidated building that um, it was the summertime. We shot that in the summer. And it was, it was uh, you know, closed for the season, essentially. It was just open for Halloween. So we were able to film in there. Um, but it was there were all kinds of problems. I mean, we barely had, we didn't have any running water. Um, there were no bathrooms. 
we barely had electricity. Oh wow! Uh, it was like it was almost like shooting in a junkyard in the middle of nowhere. Only it's ridiculous because you're off of like a you're off the 101 freeway and there's like a Macy's next to you, but somehow you don't have any running water or bathroom. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous, <laughs> absurd. Like if people wanted to go to the bathroom, they had to go across the street to a Toys R Us, literally. Oh, wow. And the play, I remember the first time we went into that place, I found a dead rat on the floor and I thought it was a prop. And then I realized it wasn't a prop. Um, Cause it, like all the rooms were set up to, you know, mimic like, you know, how haunted attractions are, you know, there's this room and that room and the other, you know, they're supposed to look like different uh-huh. theme themed rooms, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and there was this big junk pile in the back. It was just a general kind of like junkyard out there. It was weird. So that's, but and the other funny thing that happened with that movie was, well, there are a couple of things, but one thing that happened was um, there, it was, I mean, it was very, very hot. And so we had to close it, but we had to close everything down because it's supposed to be at night. So, you know, there's no light could get in. So all this boarding had to be put up on the ceilings, on the walls. I mean, it was so friggin' hot in there. It was probably the hottest shoot I've ever had. I think we shot in June or July or something like at the you know height of the summer. And um, <laughs> We had people working on the crew where I, who I did not hire and had nothing to do with who were literally, I don't want to say drug dealers, but they were definitely in a gray area of, of uh, legality in terms of their, their business. And um, they would literally <laughs> leave, like people's beepers would go off and they would just leave in the middle of a, I mean, you'd be shooting a scene and the guy would be booming and his beeper would go off and he would just drop the mic and leave. Uh. Um at the same time, some of those guys were very nice. They were very cool, but it was weird. Um, and like I said, I had nothing to do with the hiring on that. But it was there were some there were some sketchy characters. Um, oh, and the other thing that happened was the guy who rented the place to us turned out to you know, made a deal with him, and and he took you know he got paid. Then he disappeared. And like literally halfway through the shoot, the owner of the property showed up, the actual owner, and said, what are you guys doing in here? I see all these cars parked out here, and what's going on in here? I'm the owner of this place. And I said, oh, I'm shooting a movie here, and we made a deal with whatever the guy's name was, John, whatever. And he's like, no, he's not in charge of this. I am. And essentially, that guy took money. He posed as the owner and took money and then disappeared. And we weren't supposed to be there at all. And the owner was, he didn't want us there. Um, and actually Tiffany came in and she sort of sweet talked him <laughs> a bit. Uh, I talked, I talked to him a bit, but I think she probably did a, you know, she probably helped with that too. Cause I mean, essentially we were, we only had a few days left to shoot. I think we had maybe three days left or something like that. And he said, all right, you guys can stay here, but you have to move your cars. It was literally like about our parking. Like, you know, the mall didn't want us taking spots away from Macy's customers <laughs> or some stupid uh... thing like that. Which was actually fine because then we just moved our cars because it was a huge parking lot. But it was just one of those things where, you know, the guy could have just kicked us out. He could have just said, you're not supposed to be here and you got to go. And we've got like more than half a movie in the can. So, you know, um, you'd be screwed. But thankfully, he let us stay. um, And and we had Ron Jeremy in the movie. And um, that was a funny story, too, because he only worked... He worked like at night. He worked like a day and then part of a night. He kept coming back. He would leave, go do some voiceover on some other movie. He was like some HBO movie or something. Then he'd come back. And anyway, we kept filming with him and all through the night. And um, and then it got to be where it was like early morning, let's say 5 a.m., 6 a.m. or something. We wrapped him. He left. And I said, thanks. Shook his hand. Thanks for coming down. You know, he left. 
And then like we're coming out and he oh, he had blood on him because he got killed by the creature, right? So he just walked away. Well, then like literally 10, 15 minutes later, we were like working on something else or wrapping out or whatever. And somebody came running and said, Ron Jeremy just got arrested. Ron Jeremy just got arrested. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, I mean, it's just like one thing after another on this movie. And what happened was he, and then he came back and told us the story. But basically what happened was he went, walked off out into the street. This is one of major, as I said, a major street, like a major intersection where his car's going by, people going to work or whatever. And like left his, he left his costume on with blood all over, fake blood all over and decided to make a phone call. He went to a payphone or something, he made a phone call to whoever. And somebody saw him with blood and called the police. And so <laughs> then the police showed up. And then they, once they, then he started talking to him and not only did they realize it was fake blood, but they even recognized him because he's Ron Jeremy. Pretty much everybody knows what Ron Jeremy looks like. <laughs> and he like made a big joke out of it. You know, he, he couldn't wait to come down and he couldn't wait to come back to the set and tell us that. And I was just like, all right, this guy, I mean, he was, he was actually a lot of, he was a lot of fun to work with. I mean, and like I said, I only worked with him that one, you know, he came down for like one day, one long day. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, so it was just. It was just one of those shoots, <laughs> you know, it was just a, a really, um, really challenging shoot, you know. Wow. Um, but I will say that when we were filming it, especially toward the end of the shoot, we were shooting a lot of the gore and because the way we filmed that movie, we almost filmed it in sequence. Like as you'd kill people off, you would really finish with them and wrap them and they would leave. So you had less people there every day. But I remember toward the end of it when we had killed off a few characters and we were shooting those attack scenes, I was thinking, this is, this is, I think we might have something here, you know, um, between the effects and Tiffany and everything else. It was just all kind of coming together. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing we had, then the final battle on that movie, I guess, was with the editor who decided just because for some reason that he was going to cut out all the gore and all the nudity from the movie. He just decided the movie didn't need any of that, oh, which was exactly what the whole point of the movie was. And that's why Darren Ramage invested in it. So we had to, Dave and I had to have a talk with him and basically have him, uh, you know, put all that stuff back in and, you know, that wasn't very right. pleasant, which is it's, but you know, anyway, the movie, ended up being blockbuster it was my first movie in blockbuster and then there was the, ended up being a sequel to that too which i had nothing to do with but um you know it was successful and it was their best-selling title i mean death factory is brain damage's best-selling title of all time so yeah it was a uh, very difficult but i it was all all worthwhile i guess i mean that movie took a toll on me i mean i was i was pretty depleted uh by the oh, end of that man. you know it was um Doing night shoots is always difficult. It didn't start out as night shoots, but because the shoot kept every day, we went a little bit longer. Then you have to make the call for the next day later. So then the next thing you know, you're starting work at like 2 p.m., you know, or 4 p.m. And then you're like, yeah. you know, basically there all night. And um, it's just, you know, nuts. And that place got demolished after that. That whole place got demolished like, I don't know, a few years after that or something because the mall probably didn't want them there. And uh, uh, so the movie is kind of a, um, you know, it's a timepiece. Talk about preserving things that aren't around anymore. Well, it's, you know, that location doesn't exist anymore. So. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you can make a, a horror movie out of just the making of Death Factory. Well, that's what I did on Camp Blood 2. I mean, like a lot of the stuff <laughs> that happens in Camp Blood 2 
you know, it's sort of the movie within the movie or whatever. Those were things that really happened on Camp Blood. Like there's a scene in Camp Blood 2 where the clown actor punches the, the lead actress in the face for real. Well, that really happened on Camp Blood. You know, oh, wow. So okay. Yeah, you, you know, you swing at her and he, he hit her. I mean, he punched her right in the jaw and knocked her down, oh, you know, shit. and and there were other things like that. And so that, you know, there were th- there were definitely things. I mean, that was that was what Camp Blood 2 was, was really like, you know, let's take all the crazy horror stories that happened during Camp Blood and put them in a comedy context and and get people get killed, of course. <laughs> um <laughs> So that's what we kind of did. But yeah, no, Death Factory is one of my more eventful shoots, probably. It's 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 definitely up there. And especially considering it was it was not a location shoot. I mean, you know, sometimes on location shoots, things can get crazy when you're out of town, you know. Um, but that that was not a location shoot. It was in the valley, you know. Everybody just drove over there every day and went back home at the end of the day. It was just a you know, crazy. Man, well, hey man, these have been uh, some incredible stories. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about your films and, and the horror genre in general. Um, is there anything that you'd like the fans to check out, like uh, any websites, merch sites, anything like that? Um, I would say, like, I mean, we do have our official website is Nightfall Picks. I mean, I can, um, you know, I can give you the whole, you know, link for that. Um, the easiest way would probably be just to go if you're on if you're on Facebook to find us on Nightfall Pictures. Um, that's we've got a page there, and also we've got an Instagram account, which is uh, I believe it's hashtag Nightfall Picks on that as well. So they're all kind of the same essentially. That's where you can find like updates about all these movies and and stuff. Um, and I can be reached. I mean, if anybody wants to, you know, purchase something or whatever, they can contact me through those websites or even on Facebook privately. Um, you know, I've got copies of a lot of these movies and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, we talked about high, we talked about high death and, uh, as far as recent projects that are out there, I also wrote a book as my first book called terror in the desert uh, dark cinema of the Southwest, which is a movie, like a film reference book about, you know, horror thrillers and sci-fi movies and stuff that are all take place in the desert from the silent era up till now. So you've got like over 200 movies in there. And, um, there's probably some you've heard of like the hitcher and the Hills have eyes and, and uh, tremors, but then there's like, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, TV movies and all kinds of weird, films that you might not have heard of that I covered in there too. So that was something I did in between films that was kind of like a fun creative thing that just exploring a, a genre that I love. So um so that's out there too. McFarland published that in twenty eighteen and you can get that on Amazon and I mean all these things you can get them on Amazon obviously you know and um mm-hmm. you know you can random stream them whatever a lot Blagers is around too Blagers is on Tubi uh, it's you know they're all out there but um, obviously if you want to support the filmmaker directly uh, streaming doesn't really bring in much much of a much income for for filmmakers honestly it doesn't make much for distributors and it makes even less for filmmakers mm-hmm. so if you want to get a physical copy of something then you can find me at those at those places so well very cool man uh 
Hey, man, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Well, I hope you all enjoyed episode 57. Uh, it was an incredible interview. I know it's kind of a long one, but uh, there's you know, a lot of good stories in there, and I hope you all uh, listened to the whole uh, interview and episode. And uh, if you want to hear more, I'm going to be adding a little bit of uh, uh, an eight-minute or so uh, bonus of uh, us talking about horror soundtracks and, uh, and Italian composers and whatnot. So it's just a little extra that uh, we sort of started talking a little bit more after uh, I initially had ended the interview. But uh, there's some good conversation in there, so I wanted to keep that in the episode as well. So uh, there's going to be no ending song or anything like that. Uh, I'm just going to give you some more uh, bonus conversation. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy. And uh, stay tuned for the next one because uh, I got some pretty good episodes uh, in line and uh, some more guest announcements. TBA, uh, it's you know, Ruhor Podcast is uh, is popping off, if, if you will. It's <laughs> I'm getting some pretty good guests lined up, so uh, I think you'll all be excited, and, and uh, I hope you enjoy. So, as for that, here's some more bonus content, and uh, like I said, stay tuned for the next one, guys. Thank you all for listening. You know, like last week, I just did that big interview with uh, composer Stefano Mainetti. I want to mention, I want to say something about that. First of all, that's a great score. Um, congrats on that. And um, speaking of Death Factory, his, the music that, um, I've got the soundtrack for Stage Fright here. And I've had it for more than 20 years, longer than I want to admit, probably. Well, uh, anyway, one of my favorite horror soundtracks that he did with Simon Boswell and that was the music I was listening to a lot of time when I was writing Death Factory. So, oh, wow, interesting little connection there. But no, I mean it's it's this stuff is great. And I I had the Zombie Three soundtrack too. Um, great great stuff. Great, you know, mm-hmm. love love the Italian uh, Italian scoring, Goblin, all that stuff, man. But but his stuff is fun. I mean, it's a little bit more upbeat, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it has that sound with like you know you know what I'm talking about. It's it's got that like early '90s. Italian horror sound to it that that you know is is a lot of fun, so that's really cool. Actually, I look forward to listening to that when you put it up because I love to hear what he uh, what he has to say. You know, right? Yeah, it it, it there's some incredible stories. Uh, you know, if you're more of a listener, uh, the my episode is longer on the audio version, but uh, okay, uh, the video version I had uh, one of my friends. He's a uh, professional film editor uh ben lewandowski for uh, mm-hmm. september sun films mm-hmm. i i had him uh edit the video so he tightened it up it's mm-hmm. like 25 minutes long but i mean it's it, it's so cool it actually looks like a professional interview nice it's, it's even got like you know stills picture stills of nice nice you know in and, and just you know words like info about him and in whatever topic we're talking about it's it's really cool so yeah you know whatever you prefer audio or visual but uh 
definitely maybe check out the the youtube video it's it's pretty cool yeah 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 uh, i will i will I, I saw that name on there i was like oh man you know like like it took me back you know it's like oh, <laughs> i know that name you know i mean if you know italian horror films and you know the music you know who that is you know right um but yeah that, that's it's, it's some fun stuff i like yeah i'll definitely check that out for sure for sure yeah, it's funny uh I, I've met two Fulci film composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, virtually Stefano, and then uh, actually got to meet uh, Fabio Frizzi at a. Oh, okay. Uh, at a, uh, he was doing like a U.S. tour. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, with the the Beyond, and then him right. playing the music, and so I got a chance to meet him and and talk to him. So I just thought, you know, how, you know, small world, I guess. And oh, just, yeah. Well, Very these guys cool appreciate. It's it's nice to see them getting the appreciation now, frankly, because you know, when they were doing this stuff, I mean, you know, of course it was a living and all that, but like, it was not appreciated. It was not, you know, they they were not going to be touring anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and very few people recognized that, even even in within I would say the genre, like you know, scholars or whatever. I think people were frankly too busy condemning Fulci films, you know, not so much supporting. And I think it took a long time for all of that stuff to kind of get the appreciation it deserves. And so, like, you know, seeing him touring or Claudio Simonetti or any of these guys, um, I mean, like, actually, Todd used him. Todd Sheets used Fabio Fritzi. He did some music for one of, at least one of Todd's movies. I mean, he did it for, um, God, which one was it? I think it was House of Forbidden Secrets. He got Fabio Fritzi, did the music, um, at least wow. for one of them. But anyway, I mean, that's pretty great in my opinion. And I was watching it and I was listening to the music. I'm going, yep, that sounds like Fabio Fritzi. You know, it sounds like a, a Fulci film, you know, going beyond or something, you know. That's amazing. Um, I love his score for Zombie, actually, like in particular. Like, I, I really like that beat. It's just got that, there's something about that beat that mm-hmm. just it's it's it it make it, it make it right it, it elevates that movie i mean i like it the movie anyway but it elevates the movie it, it kind of ties it all together um most definitely yeah i love it I and mean, you can play that thing i can play that all damn day in fact i got <laughs> tim oh tim ritter got me like as a christmas present he got me the um that recent release of zombie it's like a three disc set it's like a blu-ray set oh that, okay severin or Blue Underground or whatever put out and it's got a disc yeah Blue Underground it's a um there's a disc in there with the whole Fritzy score you know just wow separately incredible yeah yeah I'm actually I I need to listen to that again (laughs) I've got a lot of (laughs) Italian score I'm I'm a big on soundtracks man I could talk soundtracks all day long you know I mean I yeah uh, City of Living Dead in fact I watched that around last year watched that in October watched that and um uh, some other Fulci film, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was. I know. I mean, that's another one that has great music. You know, the City of Living sure. Dead score is great, and all, all the stuff he did for those is just tremendous. So it's nice that these guys are out there and they're accessible. You know, they appreciate oh, the fans, sure. and, and even and we'll still do stuff. They're doing new stuff too. So um, yeah, it, it's amazing, man. It's really cool to see them. You know, keep keep on keeping on, and yeah, and, yeah, yeah conversing with the fans you know like they're mm-hmm. really down-to-earth guys and it's it's awesome yeah but we might have to make another podcast just talking about soundtracks because i i I, I, love I, I love i love to do that i mean i you know that's like one of my favorite like i said that's sometimes my favorite aspect of 
of movies is the soundtracks. I mean, you know, it's one of the biggest for me, without a doubt. And uh, that's actually one of the things I've I've fought for on certain movies, big time. Um, like this movie called Goth, that you should actually you should check out sometime if you want to see one of my films. It's it's out there. You can stream it or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It's very music oriented, and it's just. Um, I mean, like for example, the guy that that is this um, British like dark wave kind of composer. Um, he's not even a movie guy, really. He does just albums and you know um, electronic music. He was such a fan of goth that he com- did a whole album about it, like based around it. And he told me about it recently, just recently. And that's how I ended up getting him on the film. Um, on day out of days because he, I liked what I heard and then you know so we collaborated on this but it's different kind of music it's electronic music but it's, it's not your typical movie music like I like things that are different I like things that are that's why I like Goblin because it's more like a rock kind of thing going on kind of like electronic rock you know progressive it's just different it's not it's John Williams you know it's mm-hmm. it's a it's something else that I respond to a lot more um Italian music, it sort of exists outside of the movie in a very good way. Um, you can listen to it apart from the movie, no problem. You know, right. it's, it's got its own life. And I think that's very important for good movie scores to have. Um, so anyway, but yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about film music. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm a fan, oh, especially with horror movies or just, just general, you know, um, weirder movies and stuff that's that's something i always enjoy so heck yeah man yeah for sure we'll we'll definitely have to make that happen down you know down the line of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of things 